any risk-based decision comes with what we call these four propositions of risk, okay? And you really kind of, you can't really make a decision without somehow confronting these four propositions. Um, your desires, proposition there is what would you like? Opportunity, what's available? Power, can you make it happen? And expectations, what might result? So no matter who you are, when you're faced with a decision, you kind of automatically blow through those things. There's something that happens to us um, where we can become blind to things about ourselves, or we overlook our, I would just say, our proneness to sin or our proneness to self-indulgence. And we can gradually fall into these traps where we make some very bad decisions. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, the companies, and the small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an incredible entrepreneur, business leader, community activist, author, speaker, pastor, coach, just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only in their personal life, but also with what they do for a living. My goal with this show is to show you, the listener, that no matter what you do, no matter where you are, you can make an impact. My guests, yes, plural, this week are David Ashcraft and Dr. Rob Skasel. They are the authors of a new book called What Was I Thinking? How to Make Better Decisions So You Can Live and Lead with Confidence. David is the senior pastor of LCBC Church, and he has been for over 31 years. This church grew from 150 people to now 20,000 people in 19 locations in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Whereas Dr. Rob is a business psychologist, and he is coming at this from that psychology uh, perspective. And today's conversation is so rich, so deep, timely. Oh my goodness. I had honestly probably nine or 10 more things that I wanted to ask them and couldn't even get to it because we were running out of time. But let me tell you, this is a conversation that I feel like every leader or somebody who is a part of an organization needs to listen to because we're talking about making better decisions making wise decisions, how we hold each other accountable, how we hold others accountable, how we hold ourselves accountable. Oh my goodness. It is a rich, rich, rich conversation. I'm not going to waste any more of your time. So let's get right into it and enjoy my conversation with David Ashcraft and Dr. Rob Skasel. Hi, Rob and David. Welcome to the show. Thank you you guys so much for being here. I am really, really looking forward to this conversation. I actually just got a copy of your new book. What was I thinking? How to make better decisions so you can live and lead with confidence. And I, I just got it over the weekend. And so I cracked into it. And I mean, like a quarter of the way through and already like, okay, my mind is as somebody who is a chronic overthinker, <laughs> this is, I feel like, especially written for me, although I realize it can apply to just about any person. But for somebody who is a chronic overthinker and uh, often gets analysis paralysis when it comes to decision making, this is uh, a much needed resource for somebody like me, but definitely something that anybody can read. But before we get into that and all the nitty gritty with that, let's uh, get to know you guys. So uh, let's give us the 101. So David, I'm actually going to start with you. Uh, so give us the David Ashcraft 101. Yeah. So Molly, thank you for having us um, here. And uh, I have been the pastor of a church called LCBC Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for about 31 years. And uh, 
the church was called Lancaster, originally it was called Lancaster County Bible Church. We shortened it to LCBC, and it just stands now for Lives Changed by Christ. And so we just say we're a group of people whose lives have been, continue to be changed by Christ. And uh, when I came 31 years ago, there were about 150 people. And uh, now we have right around 20,000 people and uh, wow. 19 locations. So it's grown over the last several years and just been real exciting to be a part of it. I'm married to Ruth. I've got two children. They're both married. We have two grandchildren and thoroughly enjoying the uh, grandparent stage. You know, uh, my, so my dad, I, this is just a little side note. My dad turned 78 yesterday and he came over and was hanging out with me and my kids. And just to watch my dad, like just really live in the grandparenting phase of life is real fun. Actually, the other night we happened to run in my family and I just went out to pick up Chipotle for dinner. And we were in the parking lot outside of the Chipotle and we ran into my dad and I was like, Hey, dad, you want to come just sit with us? And so we're sitting with us and he goes and he just disappears for like five minutes and comes back with this like four scoop Baskin Robbins Sunday, which of course my kids get like bug eyes and they're like, pop pop got ice cream. Like, does that mean we get to have ice cream? So I looked at my dad and I was like, you're buying it for them. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, after we ate, he immediately takes my kids and just walks off and takes them to Baskin Robbins. I was like, that's peak grandparenthood right there. So um, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, well, I want to learn more about you, but we're going to uh, go over to Dr. Rob. <laughs> that's what I was jokingly calling you. Uh, I mean, you're, you are a doctor, but yes. you know. Uh, so uh, Rob, give us uh, the Rob 101. Yeah, so I'm a business psychologist, and most people don't know what that means. So <laughs> yes. keep that brief. It's basically explain that to me like I'm applying psycho <laughs> was yeah. It's so it's it basically um, it's applying uh, psychology to business settings. So do a lot of work with business leaders, a lot of work helping them lead more to, more effectively, helping their organizations. And so um, I've actually been a part of LCBC Church since about 1993, and David and I have known each other for a long time. Wow. I actually worked. Um, uh, at the church for about a five-year period in the early 2000s as well. And, um, and a good bit of the work that, um, that I do day-to-day -day is with, um, it's mostly with businesses, but a fair amount with churches and other ministry organizations as well. And um, I live in Lancaster, and my wife, Marita, and I have been, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary. Congratulations! So we're excited about that. Yeah, thank you. And, um, and we have uh, three kids and, um, and two grandchildren and one in the oven. So we're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're loving that stage of life, too. I think that is absolutely fantastic. My husband and I just celebrated 10 years. So okay. uh, we're a third of the way there to where you are. Right. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. Thank you. My husband and I last week were just talking about um, like marriage advice we got before we got married. And it was funny. He was he told me the story that I'd never heard before that before we got married, it was like a couple weeks before the wedding. He'd asked uh, a, a friend of his who just celebrated 60 years of marriage. And he was like, okay, what do you, you know, what's your secret to staying married for 60 years? And he was like, I don't know. I just marry the right person. Like if you don't marry the right person, then you're probably just going to hate each other and get divorced. And my husband was like, great advice. All right. <laughs> so I think it sounds like you picked the right person. I I'm 10 years in, I feel like I picked the right person. So I love yeah, it. I'm feeling pretty good about that choice. <laughs> so. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So I want to dive into this topic. Um, and I think first I want to know what, what was it that caused you to make the decision? See what I did there to write this book. Um, one of the really fascinating statistics uh, that I read was that we adults on average make 35,000 decisions a day, which is a little like one, how do people quantify that? I'm a, I'm a little skeptical, but I don't know. I mean, but then I guess like, it's like what to wear, what time to get up. I don't know. I mean, it's like, how is it, how is it quantifying all those things? In any event, 
I'm very fascinated as to like, what was the catalyst for you two to collaborate and, and write this book in this season? Yeah. So Molly, what started this whole process for us was probably about three or four years ago, I had had a Wednesday night dinner with a man that was a mentor, I would consider of mine, a friend of mine, and Ruth, my wife and I, and about three other people. So five or six of us were having dinner together. All the, this magical night of spending time together and couldn't wait to get back to the office on Monday to say, man, I had this amazing experience, this amazing dinner with this mentor and, and a national leader. And before I could even get back to the office on Monday morning, news came that he had uh, been accused, uh, was being accused of a lot of inappropriate behavior. Mm. And it just really shook me. And I stepped back and just kept thinking, what was he thinking to make some of the decisions that he made to put himself in a position where he would be involved in inappropriate behavior? And so that that question was just ringing in my ear. So um, because of my relationship with Rob, because he's a psychologist, I thought, okay, let's talk with Rob and find out what does cause people to make those kind of decisions. So that kind of started us on the path of how we make decisions, how can we make sure we're not making foolish decisions like this friend of mine, and how to make sure we're making wise decisions, taking wise risks in life. So that's really the start of the whole process. Well, one, I think that that story, unfortunately, is far too common these days. And, you know, a friend of mine, actually, uh, we were hanging out last week, we were traveling together, and we were, uh, she and her husband pastor a church locally. Um, and, you know, my family and I are, we're involved in a small church plant here. And we were talking about this. And, you know, obviously, this is on the heels of some pretty uh, shocking things um, coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention and the report of just all, you know, so many people uh, over the years who have been sexually abused within the church. And there's just, I mean, the reality is, is I mean, and this obviously this happens more often than it should in church. Um, you know, church should be the safe place. And the reality is, is that often if for many, it's not. And but, you know, this happens in business, in the corporate world, in Hollywood. I mean, it's it almost feels like these quote unquote bad decisions. And it isn't necessarily always um, connected, uh, connected to sexual decisions, although a lot of times it is. Yeah. You know, more often than not, it almost feels like there's no industry that is immune to this. And you'd think that the church would be immune, but it's not. And, um, you know, yes, we can give a very um, almost over-spiritualized answer and say, oh, it's the brokenness of our world and it's the consequence of sin. And yes, that is true, but there's a whole lot more to it. And um, so I think that, one, this is a topic and an issue that is Really, we need to be discussing it. We need to be discussing why is this happening. And um, you know, in fact, and I'm gonna say one more thing just before I kind of bounce it back to you. And Rob, I'd really be interested to hear your perspective on this, because again, uh, like in a lot of conversations recently, I was saying I was just like, you know, you as somebody who I I'm not a pastor, but I'm heavily involved in my church. My husband's not a pastor, but he's heavily involved in our church. And you know, I think about my own personal spiritual journey. I don't know what other people's spiritual journey is and and their relationship with the Lord. And, you know, but as somebody who I wake up every single day and the first thing that I do is open my Bible and I spend a lot of time with the Lord each and every day, studying the word, praying, talking to him as I go about my day. It's, it is ingrained in every bit of me. And I'm not, and I realize that a dangerous thing to say is I, I don't feel like I could never make one of those quote unquote bad decisions because um, I've certainly made bad decisions, but that was like before I knew the Lord, um, you know, so I think about like in my relationship, with if I, if I come to a, a crossroads where I, I'm like, I see a, a choice and I go, I could go this way 
And suddenly I could end up there or I could go this way and and just continue to follow what the Lord's telling me to do and end up somewhere else. I'm going to go with what the Lord's telling me to do. Yet I realize that that's not everybody's story. And so that's a very like long winded and probably all over the place setup for why is it that this is happening so much, especially with pastors who are supposedly or other church leaders who are supposedly each and every day spending time with the Lord? Like what? What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, for, for any of us, uh, all of us have blind spots. You know, all of us have, have uh, things about ourselves that maybe other people can see that we can't see in ourselves. And it is, you know, it's perplexing when we see these people who we really look up to and we see like, well, how, how could that happen? What were they thinking in this yeah. situation? And so, you know, as, as, as David and I sort of wrestled with this, um, our, our, uh, one of the starting points was just, let's just look at how people make decisions. Um, mm. You know, what happens when you're faced with a risk-based decision? And, um, and we realized that, you know, for virtually any decision for any person, whether you're a believer or not, any risk-based decision comes with what we call these four propositions of risk, okay? And you really kind of, you can't really make a decision without somehow confronting these four propositions. Um, your desires, proposition there is what would you like? Opportunity, what's available? Power, can you make it happen? And expectations, what might result? So no matter who you are, when you're faced with a decision, you kind of automatically blow through those things. There's something that happens to us um, where we can become blind to things about ourselves, or we overlook our, I would just say our proneness to sin or our proneness to self-indulgence. And we can gradually fall into these traps where we make some very bad decisions. Wow. I've never remotely thought about like the things that go into decision-making and how often it kind of, like you said, it's just, it's done almost instantaneously, mm -hmm. but maybe mm -hmm. with some of those bigger decisions or somebody like me, who's a chronic overthinker, um, and, and overanalyzes those decisions, um, the little pieces, what were some of the things as you guys were beginning to break down this process? What were some of the things that maybe were surprising to you as you were kind of, again, figuring out what is it that goes into making a decision, whether it's a small decision or a large decision, but especially those risk-based decisions. And, and kind of secondary question is, how do you then identify like what is a risk-based, what determines a risk-based decision? Well, risk-based decision is really any decision where there's some reasonable likelihood of injury or loss. Okay. Mm. So there are lots of decisions we make during the course of a day, where there's some risk associated with it. And some decisions, um, you know, we make almost automatically, they happen very fast and we don't think about it, but, um, but other decisions we, um, you know, it develops over time. And so typically the kinds of decisions where people are doing these, I, I would say falling into these situations where they're exercising really poor judgment, sexually abusing someone, for example, or drifting into an affair, um, that usually doesn't happen overnight. And they've allowed themselves really to um, misuse their power or get a skewed perception of, mm. of themselves in the play. Um, in terms of what surprised us as we looked at this, um, I don't know, David, would you speak to anything in particular you would think was our, our big surprise in this? Yeah, surprising is interesting. And Molly, just to reiterate a little bit of what Rob was saying, what's hard on the decisions is things that are real small tend to, over time, become real big. Mm -hmm. And so we think on the small part of the small decisions, well, it's so small, I don't know that I even need to bother talking to God about this one. Or we just instinctively react. I've got a friend whose name is Craig. He talks about in his life, 
he's got to make the decision every day to get out of bed instantly when the alarm goes off and then make his bed right away. And he said what he's found is if he doesn't get up and make his bed, that he finds himself being less disciplined throughout the day. Hmm. And kind of look and go, well, that's that's a such an insignificant decision to make your bed. And yet he's saying, if I don't do that, then it's going to make me slack the rest of the day. And so and even as you talk about moral failures, it doesn't like Rob said, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens yeah. gradually and it starts with very small decisions. And I'm sure the small decision initially was one that oh, I'm not going to have to go through a model of how do I make this decision if I'm going to talk to this woman or not. Or And so it just starts small. So. I think from a surprise standpoint, I don't know if it's surprise as much as as we look at a lot of decisions. And I think we're talking specifically to leaders, Molly and Christian leaders. Um, there's a sense of what we see oftentimes in leaders in the church, a sense of entitlement where um, I'm working hard for God. I'm putting in lots of time. I may, may not be receiving the financial monetary rewards of working so hard. So therefore, I'm entitled to fudge in other areas. Maybe it's fudge in my expense report. Maybe it's fudge in my relationships with other people. But one of the things we do notice is that sense of entitlement in the Christian world and Christian leader world that I think leads to some real bad decisions where we start playing outside of the lines of what's proper. But we feel like we're, I'm, I'm working hard for God and I'm doing all this for Jesus and I'm sad sacrificing. So therefore, I'm due the, this opportunity mm. to do something that wouldn't be right otherwise, but because of how much I work for God, I'm, I'm entitled to it. Entitlement is for sure a, oh man, I've never really thought of it in those terms, but yes, like I deserve this. And we see that in so many ways. And, and it, it's funny. Uh, there's another church leader that I know who, um, she always talks about the fact that she hates the word deserve. Like we don't deserve anything, but that's a really, um, it's a very, uh, almost overused thought or idea. Um, but what you guys were saying reminds me, and I think this is like almost the perfect analogy for this. And I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast or not. So if you're listening and you're like, you've said this before, forgive me. Um, but it reminds me of this story that I read. And this is a true story. You can look it up and Google it. Back in like 2001, there was this, uh, he was a construction worker. He was like in his early 30s and he was a construction worker. He lived in Harlem in, in New York City and he brought home to his Harlem apartment an eight-week-old tiger cub. And somehow he had gotten this tiger cub and he was like, look at this cute little tiger cub. And so he brings this tiger cub home to his Harlem apartment and eight weeks old and uh, he starts feeding and he starts caring for this little tiger cub, this very adorable, fuzzy, you know, little tiger cub. Well, what happens when you feed a tiger? They get bigger. <laughs> and eventually that eight week old precious little tiger cub turns into a 425 pound Bengal tiger. And uh, obviously, eventually a 40, 425 pound Bengal tiger uh, was alerting the neighbors. The neighbors were were hearing this 425 pound Bengal tiger. And uh, so police were called, police show up to the apartment and what is greeting them, but a roaring 425 pound Bengal tiger. And eventually they had to, you know, shoot it with a tranquilizer dart and get it out of the apartment and all this stuff. But it's like, it's the perfect analogy for those little choices that lead up to big consequences and how this seemingly innocent, oh, look at this precious little eight-week-old tiger cub eventually turns into a very deadly, like a half-ton animal, you know? And so it's like, 
but just little by little. And it's, and, you know, I think about like my own animals that I have, it's like, you know, a a baby chick on our farm is hatched. And then suddenly, you know, six weeks later, it's like a full size chicken. And it happens so gradually. And it's not like I can see the growth, but it just happens before your eyes. And so um, it's like that with those, those micro decisions that in the moment seem this isn't a big deal. I'm going to DM this person that is not my spouse and have a conversation with them. And very soon, all of a sudden, you're sharing intimate uh, you know, details about your life with this person that is not your spouse. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, we should just meet up for coffee. We're friends. And then it just it escalates from there. But yeah, it's I really feel like the Bengal tiger is like the, the, the analogy that is the most visually representative of, of what you're talking about. And Molly, we probably all do this more than we realize. I know that even for myself, when I'm real busy, um, and especially if I'm real busy doing work for church, then I start thinking, okay, so my downfall is food. And so I think, okay, I deserve this um, this extra meal. I deserve this extra dessert. And to your point on the tiger, I mean, one dessert is fine, but if I do that for a month, all of a sudden I've added 20 pounds and I'm like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? And, and so, yes, it does start in those real small decisions that way. One of the other surprises, Molly, that we found is just how many of us operate totally off of our gut or our feel in our mm-hmm. decisions. And so you described yourself as being somebody very analytical and you work through and you almost go to excess of working through the decisions. But so often we rely on our gut and what do I think is the right thing without really thinking it through or without having a thoughtful process. It's just what feels right to me. And that happens even with church leaders, leaders in general. And so part of what we're trying to get people to do is at least on things that are starting to become major decisions, slow down and have a thoughtful process in your decision. Don't just go off of your gut and what seems right in the moment. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that you brought up a good point where you talked about like for you, it's food Um, for me years ago. And this was before I uh, was again, before I was a believer for me, it was actually spending money of just this uh, death by a thousand cuts um, and spending money irresponsibly. And, um, you know, yes, there were a couple of like big ticket things here and there that I looking back should not have bought at the age of 22. But, you know, a lot of it was just a shopping trip here, a trip, you know, spending money here, going out to dinner here. And then all of a sudden I find myself, you know, a year out of college and I'm $36,000 in consumer credit card debt. And I only make $30,000 a year as a high school teacher. And so I find myself way in over my head and I just go, wait, how did I like, how did I get here? How did, what, how did this happen? You know? And I think, I mean, it can happen, you know, in other ways too, like where we see a lot of, um, you know, famous people who find themselves, you know, in financial trouble or uh, people who have been caught like laundering or embezzling money, you know, things like that. And it's just like a little bit here, a little bit there. And um, I realize this is like a very, uh, I don't, I'm prefacing this with, I don't watch the show, but my husband is a big fan of the show Ozark. I can't do it because it's real, real dark. I can't, it's not, it's not for me, but I like to have my husband explain episodes of the show, like I know what's going on. So I'll be like, tell me what happened tonight. And then he'll explain it to me as though I know who these characters are. But one of the things again, with them, it's like, you know, it's this family, the birds that, you know, they get into money and drugs and the cartel and there's all this stuff again, it's too dark for me. However, it kind of starts with like one little micro decision and all of a sudden they get away with it. And it's, you know, and then it's like, oh, let's make a bigger decision. Let's make a bigger decision by the end of the series. Like, it's just there's no good people. There's no redeeming characters left. Everybody's evil and, and they're all bad. And so, yes, you know, we see these we see this in sexual sin. We see this in, um, you know, gluttony. We see this in, in financial decisions that can be, can be a, a variety of things. Um, so, 
my question is, is if this is something that somebody feels like they're struggling with, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, maybe they're too often following their gut, maybe they're too often finding themselves making these micro decisions that add up to macro mistakes. What is your recommendation for somebody who's just really feeling like they struggle with this and they don't know where to begin to, to make better decisions or to, um, to hold themselves accountable or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, that's a great question. And so really the first thing is to actively invite God into the process. I mean, that, I know that sounds like this painfully obvious thing, but part of it is when we're struggling with something, we have to go right there to God and ask him to show us things in ourselves that we need to see. And also to bring other people into our lives that will help us through these mm. things. And so when we talk about even just some uh, strategies or tactics for uh, helping make wise decisions, you know, a lot of what we talk about is um, transparency with others, uh, inviting people to, to, to help uh, really give a critique of the way you're thinking through things um, and, to, and to create uh, really, uh, what do I say, to, to create a, a exposure uh, for, for us in, um, in the areas that we struggle with. And obviously, you need to, these need to be people that you trust. They need to be people that are godly. Um, but too often, we just try to go it alone. And, and so much of what leads to these damaging decisions is a combination of self-deception, again, mm. not having an accurate view of ourselves, and self-indulgence, which is just not, not managing the whims and the passions and the impulses that we have in life. And, um, and, and given that limited insight that we all have, we all have these blind spots, um, and we all have these temptations, um, you really have to work to build your self-awareness, to, to put some boundaries for yourself in place, but even more importantly, invite other people to help you with that. Mm. What about you, David? Anything you would add to that? Well, I would say what's interesting in the conversation, Molly, is part of what we say in the book is cautioning against making those negative mistakes. But there's also a flip side of that, of becoming so cautious that you don't make any decisions. <laughs> yes, and yes. Guard yourself. Yeah. And so there's this side of it that we've got to take risk if we're going to move forward. And if we find ourselves paralyzed because we can't make decisions, then all of a sudden we flounder and we end up just in mediocrity. And so part of the book is also saying, how do we challenge ourselves to go ahead and take risks? And that's where that thoughtful process of thinking through a decision so that it's not just my gut, um, but it's really something thoughtful where I can be pretty confident that, yes, this is a good decision. It's worth taking the risk to move forward. And I'm not going to harm myself in the process. But we tend to we tend to want to be adverse to risk. And I know for myself, I'm that way. Um, as I was a kid, you know, I wasn't the one that was always accepting the dares that people would throw my way. I would never accept a dare. I, why would I? Why would I harm myself just because <laughs> you want to dare me? Um, yes. Or why would I want to jump out of an airplane just because that's what people do? And so I didn't do that. And, and so I have to be challenged to say, okay, I need I need, similar to what you described yourself, I need to know that this is the right decision to make. And so how can I do that? If that's just my gut, then I'm going to tend to be more adverse to that risk. But if there's a thoughtful process, I'm more likely to take it and step out. Part of what we uh, encourage readers to do is to is to use others to help them see opportunities and to encourage them and to challenge them and uh, to, to move forward and to take wise risks um, as well. But, but involving others is, is just a critical piece of this. Those are all such good points. And yeah, I'm definitely the one who tends to struggle with the overthinking and the analysis paralysis and that I don't make any decisions. However, this is something that I have very consciously worked on in the last few years and have made very big progress. And I think part of it stems from my pre, uh, you know, my BC life, my before Christ life, where I made really poor decisions. And so my my uh, AC life, my after Christ life is is more 
uh, I don't want to make those decisions again. So then I, I, I just paralyze myself in this moment of like, wow, well, I just then can't make any decisions where, like I said, I've, I've worked on that. But a lot of it has stemmed from surrounding myself with, um, you know, the right people and the right, um, you know, they, there's that that whole idea that you are the the sum or the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. And so um, making sure that I'm surrounding myself with, um, you know, iron sharpening iron, people who are who are able to sharpen me and, and, and encourage me. And and I've, I've definitely found that. Yeah. Now, now interestingly, um, a lot of pastors and a lot of business leaders, they're at the top of their organization. And what I hear from a lot of these people is it's lonely at the top and I don't really have anyone that I can talk to. Um, And so there's a hesitancy um, when you're sort of in that top role in an organization to uh, to make yourself vulnerable to the people around you. So there is a greater tendency to get isolated. And that in itself um, can make us more vulnerable to these bad choices. And, and another thing I'd add to that is that as you grow in stature, as you become more successful, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in business, um, your view of yourself tends to change. And it goes back to what we were talking about with entitlement. When you sort of build this track record of things going out, of working out well and being successful, you can fall into this trap where you start seeing yourself as kind of special. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that, in that way, that success that we have, which, you know, oftentimes God ordains that success. But uh, but but we have a tendency as humans to twist that into something where we start seeing ourselves as being special as the rules not applying to us. And you add isolation to that and it can really be a, um, a problematic mix. Yeah. And Molly, I would say that isolation to me is a good sign that you're starting to wander into an area that is going to be problematic. Because <laughs> when I start doing things, Rob you used the word exposure earlier, when I don't want to be exposed, when I don't want to know. I don't want anybody else to know what my thoughts are, or I just want to be completely left alone. And to me, that's a warning sign. There are, if not red lights, for sure, orange lights going off saying, be careful as you isolate yourself, because that's when you get yourself into trouble. And it's how do we bring things into the light as opposed to the dark? And if I want to be in the dark, then I'm probably starting to go down a road I shouldn't be going down. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with Rob and David to thank our partner of the show. And that is Mama Suds. Y'all know I'm a big Mama Suds fan. I have been using their products personally in my home for years now. I've had the head mama, Michelle Smith, on the show. She is a past guest. She's incredible. And let me tell you, Mama Suds makes effective, safe products that help you clean your house. I mean, everything from their Castile soap, which can be used in so many different ways, their stain stick, which I'm a huge fan of. I've shared some testimonials on here before about how they have gotten out so many stains that I thought were going to absolutely be stuck in my kids' clothes. I love their all-purpose cleaner that I can clean windows, walls, floors, toilets with it, everything. Everything is safe, effective. They smell great. I love that I'm supporting a mom-owned company and just such a huge, huge fan. So head on over to mamasuds.com. Use the code MOLLY for 15% off your order. That's mamasuds.com. Use the code MOLLY for 15% off your order. Now back to my conversation with David Ashcraft and Dr. Rob Skasel. I would 100% say from personal experience, like I know leaders, both business leaders and uh, ministry leaders, uh, very prominent business and ministry leaders personally that I know that in the last few years have really made some 
let's just say questionable decisions in a variety of areas. And one of the one of the common denominators in every single one is they isolated themselves from others. And um, and one of the very common things that I heard about even a, a, a couple of particular uh, people in general was that person was really hard to get close to, that they would never let you in. You know, you would, every conversation was very surface level. Every conversation was very um, just, uh, how are you? How you doing? Like it just, there was nothing deep. And um, it was this inability to, like you, I think to borrow the word that you said is to, to be vulnerable and to share, hey, I'm really struggling in this area. And instead they isolated themselves and in a lot of ways probably thought that they were special. And and it 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 escalated from there. David, I'm curious for you as somebody who has pastored a church that's gone from 150 people to 20,000, you know, what have what things have you put in place for yourself so that one, you don't isolate yourself? Two, that you, you know, you hold yourself accountable. Um, I, I just would be really curious to hear because I, I feel like more often than not, and maybe maybe that this is actually inaccurate because the media makes it sound like it's worse than it is, but you know, I would just be curious, what is it that you've done in your own life and and pastoring such a large church that you've you know, kind of placed a, a, a bit of protection around yourself. And I mean, I'm not saying that you're perfect or I don't, I don't know you well enough to know that, but um, you know, what have you done to, to safeguard yourself? And Molly, I would just say, I think it's harder today than ever to be vulnerable. And like you said, you kind of gave the example of somebody just giving surface answers to how am I doing um, because of social media now, because of everybody looking for sound bites. Um, if I decide I'm going to open up to somebody, but I don't know, am I safe in doing that with them? Are they going to take it and run with it? Yeah. Or are they going to tell everybody else? And as pastors, I mean, we try to say, and you know, we, we have all the right answers that yes, I support your church and every other church in town, but there's competition as well, where if I open up to another pastor, even in my community, is he going to let that out? And is he going to share that with somebody or his congregation in a way it's going to look bad on me? So, mm. so it's, I think, harder now. It's more challenging now than ever. For me personally, Molly, um, I would say my wife, Ruth, number one, is the biggest accountability partner for me. And so we're real open about everything. And she's comfortable. She always encourages me, but she's also very comfortable challenging me on things. And when my kids were home, then uh, they were strong accountability partners for me because they just, I mean, they know who I am. And yeah. so if I wasn't being on the platform, then they would tell me that. Um, Rob and I early on um, had an accountability relationship where we would meet regularly and, and we had a set of questions we'd go through. I think that's helpful. And yet you know, I would almost venture to guess that many of the people that have fallen and made bad decisions also had accountability parts. You can lie to anybody if you want, yeah. um, but it's just, it's just one more line of defense to keep you from going too far with something. So I think just being real honest and even honest with myself and all those things about, you know, Rob mentioning feeling special, feeling entitled, feeling like, okay, I'm working hard for God. Therefore, I deserve all these things that maybe other people don't deserve. I've got to constantly watch that and question myself, even my relationship with God and saying, okay, am I doing what you described? Am I waking up in the morning? Am I spending time with God? And as leaders, we struggle with that. And especially when we get busy and it's easy for, and I think what happens to pastors sometimes is I'm spending time in the word but it's not on a personal side with God. It's on a study because I've got to preach this weekend side. And it, then it becomes more of a mechanical thing other than mm. a relational thing. And that's that's where you start running problems with those kind of things. Man, that's such a good, I'd never thought about that with, with pastors. It becomes almost just, it really just becomes a part of the job rather than your own personal spiritual development. I'd never considered that before. I think, you know, and I think one of the things that is maybe for some people be like, that's discouraging, but I I find it encouraging is that we can actually look to uh, the word for countless examples of people who 
struggled and faced the exact same things that we do. Um, you know, and, and actually a, f- a friend of mine um, who I've referenced a couple of times, her name is, so her name is uh, Sharon Hottie Miller and she and her husband pastor a church here and in uh, Durham. And actually just a couple months ago, she did um, a message about, uh, you know, what do we do when, when God calls us to something and yet we see, you know, God calling us to something, but then we see people who were very clearly called by God have a giant moral failure. And so like, what did God make the wrong decision? Like what, you know? And so we, she looked at actually King Saul and how, you know, Saul was very clearly called and anointed by God to be a king. And yet he just, his, the end of his life. I mean, he fell on his own sword and uh, had this just massive feeling. And so what, what do we do with this? How do we hold this intention, you know, of this idea that we can be called to something and then, but that doesn't make us immune from, uh, you know, misusing that calling or abusing that calling. Um, I mean, we can look at David. I mean, David was arguably a rapist and a murderer. Like, I mean, we've got Abraham, who, you know, told, uh, said that his wife was his sister, even though she was like his half sister, but we'll just ignore that part. Um, you know, we've got, and obviously with, uh, you know, with Moses and we've got, uh, you know, Noah, he ends up drunk and naked in a tent. And, you know, so it's like, there's countless examples of these, you know, quote unquote heroes in scripture that we realize aren't actually heroes. Like they're just people that God used. And and to me, it's encouraging that God chose similarly and oftentimes even more, more broken people, uh, you know, for it to fulfill his plan. And so that God can use anyone uh, to to do uh, what he's called them to do. Um, Rob, I would be curious just in, in your work as a business psychologist and working and knowing David and just other business leaders, what are, what are some of the things that you've seen successful leaders or, or leaders who have been successful at this? What have they put into place um, in their own lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think even when you, when you gave those examples from scripture, I think that's a real reminder to all of us, to everyone that, you know, we've never arrived, you know, we're yeah. not going to arrive. Uh, and uh, as, as we grow as believers, there are going to be ups and downs and there are vulnerabilities we face. And the minute we start thinking that we've got it whipped and that, and then yeah. God's super pleased yeah. with the awesome person we've grown into, um, you know, that's when we're, that's maybe when we're at yeah. our most vulnerable. But, um, but look, I think, um, I think it's very, very important um, in the midst of success um, for us to remember that, um, you know, we're creatures of God and we're fully reliant on God. And, um, and so I think um, it's important for all of us to, to regularly uh, seek critical feedback from the people around us. What can I be doing better? And we have to make it safe for those people to give us that kind of feedback. Mm. Okay. I think it's also helpful even for us to actively look for ways to make ourselves accountable to others. Okay. So if we have a, um, if you have a, uh, a board of elders, um, you know, oftentimes a successful pastor, the board of elders will be like, Hey, hands off. Everything's going well. We don't want to mess anything up. We're not going to hold this person to account. And so I think um, a, a good practice for leaders is how can I invite some degree of accountability here? How can I how can I open a window so people can see what I'm doing and speak into my life? I'll give you a very simple example of this. When I came on to work for the church, David was my boss, and uh, and I was doing this consulting work on the side. <laughs> okay, 
And so, you know, if I'd been on the elder board or if I'd been David, I'd been a little, I'd be a little bit worried about, hey, is this guy doing the work he's supposed to be doing for the church? And, and so I thought, well, I want to erase that concern. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to log how I spend my time. I'm going to identify who my clients are. And I'm going to turn that log into David um, so that he can see that routinely. And so my goal there, he never asked for that, but my goal was I want to demonstrate trustworthiness in this area. So I want to look for ways to create some accountability and transparency. Mm. And I think that's a helpful thing for leaders of all stripes um, to do to guard against those kinds of pitfalls. I love that perspective. And I'm curious because, uh, you know, I think this actually, while you were talking, it just made me think, okay, so we know that and we invite people in to help keep us accountable. We ask, you know, you know, hard questions. We ask for feedback. On the flip side, if you are the person that maybe has a friend or somebody in your life that you see making decisions that maybe are those small eight-week-old tiger cub decisions, um, how do you speak into that person's life in a loving way? Because I think one of the most difficult things, now it depends on the person. My husband is an Enneagram 8. And so that guy has my husband, love him. He's the best. Zero filter, unafraid to have hard conversations. He honestly is like the greatest person for me to have in my life because like he will be unafraid to give feedback or anything. And, and, you know, even our pastor always talks about how like, he's like, I'm really glad I have a John Stillman in my life because my husband's not afraid to like be unfiltered and, and say what's on his mind. Meanwhile, I'm over here as an Enneagram two. And so my Enneagram two-ness is like, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I uh, want people to like me and I just want to be helpful. And, but I know that this is something that I, I need to work on. And that is speaking the truth in love. And that can be really hard for some people. So I would be curious, both David and Rob, if you want to speak to this, is if you are the person that is not like my husband, but you're the person who knows that, hey, there's somebody in your life that you really would like to have a maybe a little bit of a challenging conversation with, but you're just terrified because that's not your strength. What would be your advice to that person? Well, I think for me, the challenge is um, most often we're not at the stage where somebody's blatantly violating God's standards when we need to have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, if I are doing something terribly wrong, it's easier for me to say, man, Molly, what are you doing? Because I can call it out. If I'm just seeing those initial tiger cub steps, it's harder for me to call it out then because it's not real clear that you've totally messed up yet. You're just starting down a path that's going to be potentially damaging to you. And so those are the harder conversations of knowing when do I call it out? How much do I need to know? How much do I need to see evidence that you're really going the wrong way? And then you add to that. I mean, it's one thing to be like your husband, John, and be able to be real blunt, which I think I have that ability, but also in the back of my mind. So if it comes to Ruth and I, I might see something in Ruth that I want to call out, but it's like, okay, is it worth calling it out tonight? Because we're enjoying dinner and we're having the relationship. <laughs> call it out tonight and mess up tonight. And so let's go ahead and let it go. And I think we do that in all of our relationships, even our associates at work or people in the church where, you know, I'm just getting to know you now, Molly. And so I may see something in you and I don't know you well enough, or I'm not sure it's going to go far enough, or I don't want to ruin this budding relationship. So why would I call it out now? Mm. And then we let it go until it becomes a big deal. So those are the harder things yeah. or what makes it a difficult conversation. And uh, But, you know, what's interesting as you look at the lives of the people that have fallen, all of them had people around them. It's, it's, and we all do this. We go, oh, yeah, I saw that. I just wasn't sure 
that I, you know, mm. is in a place to say it. We all see those warning signs. And, and so I think it's worth speaking up, but there's a way to do it in love and say, because I love you, I just, this is what I see. I could be wrong and just go ahead and throw it out there and see what happens. And, mm. and most of the time, if somebody's not headed down a destructive way, they're going to appreciate what you said. If they respond in a harsh way and say, what are you talking about and get angry, then maybe they were going down that road and maybe you will prevent something disastrous from happening in their lives. Mm. Yeah. I would add to that. I mean, I, I, it is really important for the leader to invite it. Um, it's just hard for people to um, confront, confront, critique someone who's successful, someone who's more powerful than they are. Um, you know, and 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 sure, we we may earn the rights to have those conversations with people, but um, but I think leaders have to get used to this idea of inviting critique of what they're doing. Um, and uh, it's just difficult for someone to tell their boss something their boss is doing wrong or for someone to tell their, well, maybe it's not so difficult for people to tell their pastor what they're doing wrong. I haven't seen your emails, David. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but so, you know, so I, I think for the other person, it's it's earning the right and, and being a trustworthy, caring individual to them and having the courage to say those things. But um, but really, it just stresses the importance. Leaders have to recognize our own vulnerabilities and actively invite that from others. Mm, man, that's really, really, really good. And, and a challenge and like an encouragement to me, um, like I said, this is something I'm a work in progress on, um, you know, and I'd almost just be curious to, you know, especially if you kind of learn maybe even, you know, if the Enneagram is not for you, but just general personality types, you know, you tend to know, like my husband is somebody who he does not need the, uh, the compliment sandwich, you know, where it's like something good, a criticism and then something good on the end. Um, he just wants the criticism, like to cut to the chase. Don't give him the, the fluff. Meanwhile, I like already know that I'm the person and I've said to my husband, I'm like, if you have a criticism for me, you need to sandwich it with all of the great things about me. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm nearly 40. And so I know this about myself at this point in my life is, uh, I, cause if, if, cause if all I hear is the criticism then I'm just going to obsess over it and I'm going to be like, I'm, and then I spiral into like, I'm a terrible person and why am I doing this? And I should just quit and it's over. Um, yeah. So I think knowing your person, and I think that speaks to what David said too, is especially if it's somebody that maybe you don't know super well when you begin to develop a relationship with them and you you get deeper into relationship you can kind of begin to learn and even ask the question like how do you prefer to receive feedback like do you want it more bluntly or you know do you want the compliment sandwich um i'm actually i'm i'm writing my first book which is really exciting and uh this is actually a conversation i had uh with my editor before you know i had even accepted an offer from this publisher was when, just when we were having like an interest you know a call is she said you know what like how would you want to work with an ed editor do you want feedback along the way and i was like oh yes i definitely want feedback along, along the way but i also really need to know how great i am like <laughs> i really need you know i'd be curious rob like as a um a business psychologist how do you kind of take people's personalities into like factoring that into this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And, and, and what that question, how can I say things that, that, uh, that you'll be able to hear them or how can I be most useful to you? Um, it helps guide me in how to address um, critical feedback I may have for people, but you brought up a great point. I mean, if it's all critical feedback, your relationship's not going to go to a very good place. Yeah. And so, um, and so really most of the, you know, I would say most of what we want to have in relationships with others is it needs to be positive. It needs to be affirming. 
Um, it needs to be genuine. Okay. And, and I think when we do that, then people see that we care about them and that gives us more um, credibility and it gives mm. us the right to speak into, yeah. um, you know, some of the flaws that we might see because they know it comes from a caring place because most of what they hear from us is, you know, why we love them, what we appreciate about them, that sort of thing. Yeah. What about you, David? Anything as, you know, as a leader that as you've invited feedback from others, is that something that you have kind of openly discussed or is it more just almost unspoken? Yeah, what I tell our executive team all the time is I want to hear from them what they're feeling, what they're seeing in me. And I will also tell them, I may get mad at you um, when you first tell me. Uh, I may not like what you say, but tell me anyway, and I'll get over it. And we've worked together long enough and we're close enough relationally where mm. they've earned the right to speak in. And similar to what Rob said, they also will tell, tell me all the positive things. And even for Ruth, my wife, um, she's my greatest fan. And so I trust her implicitly that she's going to tell me the good things, but she'll also tell me the bad things too. And she is just real perceptive for myself or even other people where she goes, you need to be careful with that person. And so there are people you learn to listen to, especially different areas of your life, where when it comes to certain things, and I know Ruth, if she has any hesitation, then I back away instantly. And there are people on my team here at church where it's the same kind of thing. There are other people that um, I'm not going to listen to them in certain areas yeah. because they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the situation, the leadership, and so they can say whatever they want. I'm not going to listen to them. And so you kind of figure out who you're going to listen to and who you're not, who you trust, who you don't, and who's earned that level of trust. But oftentimes, if somebody that hasn't earned that trust says something to me, then my response is, well, you know, you don't understand. And that could get me into trouble too, because you don't understand how hard I work. Or you don't understand the, mm. the extra time I Therefore, that's why I get to do the thing you're questioning. And, and so you just got to be careful with that constantly. And so that self-evaluation is just so important to continually be in our minds going over and over. How am I doing? Where am I at in my relationship with God, relationship with others? Such a good point about uh, discerning what voices you're going to listen to, because the reality is, is that we hear lots of voices constantly, especially with social media. Um, if I listen to the advice and criticism of every um mean commenter on uh, Instagram and Twitter, then I would have a massive identity crisis. Um, so, uh, you know, it, yeah, having the ability to know, okay, this person is allowed to speak this into me because they know me, they know, they know my, my, my intentions, they know my heart, they know, uh, you know, my purpose and my goal and my calling. And I mean, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, it's just it that discernment is a key key, uh, you know, piece of spiritual maturity, personal maturity, professional maturity, um, just it, it falls into so many different categories of, of being what it, what it takes to be a good leader and a good servant. Um, you know, and, and Molly, being, around, being around a lot of pastors, pastors tend to be people pleasers. Yes. They want everybody happy with them. And so they tend to be paralyzed in making decisions because not everybody's going to like their decision. One of the things we took on early on as a church is we said, rather than try 50-50 and try to keep everybody kind of happy and nobody's happy and everybody's kind of grumbles, we said, we're going to pick a direction. If 90% of the people are greatly enthused with us, that's great. That means 10% may be greatly upset with us. We're okay with that. And so pastors tend to be people pleasers. And so that that causes them then to be paralyzed. And I think that's why a lot of churches struggle because the leadership is trying to keep everybody happy and you just can't do that. And mm. so again, part of the, the purpose of the book is to say, you got to go ahead and take risk. And that is what's going to move you forward as a church, as a business, as a person, um, take those risks and step out there and go. 
Mm. Well, as somebody who, like I said, who is involved in a church plant, that was some, uh, that was some, that was ministering to me. So, and I'm not even the pastor. So <laughs> well, it's hard when you're small, because you kind of go, man, if we lose that family, we've only got 10 families in the church. And if that family leaves, then we're, then we're in trouble. Or if that's the key giver in the church, then we're in trouble. And so the leader then wants to give in to that leader mm. and say, okay, well, if you're not happy, then we'll change it and we'll do it your way. But all of a sudden the pastor's given leadership over to that person. Mm. And now the church. And so you've got to be able to step back and say, you know what? God's called me to go this direction. I'm listening to what you're saying. I don't feel like that's where God's taken us. And you've got to be willing to take the risk and say, okay, if that family walks, then we're willing to do that. And for us as a church, when we were smaller, that was challenging. Now as it's bigger, it's still challenging because I mean, if 10% of our people are upset, then that means we've got 2000 people that are mad and walking out the door. And so then you go, oh, we don't want to lose 2000. And we'll hear a few criticisms and we'll get 10 or 15 emails. We'll go, oh, everybody's upset. And we're like, well, wait a minute, 15 emails out of 20,000 people. That's that's not yet 10%. We're doing okay. Mm, so, mm. Man, I have like nine other things that I want to talk about. This conversation is so rich and uh, so topical or so timely and so needed. Um, and we are running out of time. And I just, I'm very, I'm very sad because I, I'm just gonna have to have you guys back on because I like, there's like, like I said, probably a whole other part of this conversation that I didn't even get to that I really wanted to get to. Um, but before we get to the get to know you round, uh, any last final thoughts uh, from either of you kind of about this and what you hope um, that this book is able to do for leaders and for, um, you know, people both in uh, the church and outside of the church? Molly, the one thing I would say is as a leader and as I am getting older and soon going to be stepping out of my role, my biggest question for the staff that's going to be taking my place is to say, how do they make decisions? How can I trust them that they're going to make wise decisions? And I don't want them just to go off of feel. I want them to go off of a thoughtful process. And so I think what we offer in the book is a thoughtful process for boards or teams to kind of work through so that we're not just relying on Molly's sense of this is right or David's sense of this is right. But here's a thoughtful process, which then gives me assurance that we're going the right direction. So I think that's what's helpful in trying to think through it for me as a leader in watching us move forward. Yeah. And look, there's no way. Uh, life itself is risky. Um, you know, if you've got a hard job, you're going to make some wrong decisions. And so, you know, we're not we're not trying to pretend that um, walking through this process is going to uh, is going to make all of your decisions perfect. Um, but it, it, that it's a process that will help you um, think through things carefully and um, consistently make wise decisions um, that honor God. So good. So good. Um, all right. This is uh, the portion of the show where we get uh, to the get to know you round. We ask some fun get to know you questions. Up. But before I say that, actually, everybody go buy this book. Uh, what was I thinking? How to make better decisions so you can live and lead with confidence. So good. Such a needed book right now. Thank you guys for writing this. Um, all right. So now is the time where we ask just some fun get to know you questions. I'm going to ask one of each of you. We'll go back and forth. Uh, so question number one, this one goes to David. What was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? Oh, my goodness. Um, growing up. So I was probably in the leave it to beaver stage. I hate to say that. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, Rob, what about if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life? What would it be? Um, probably steak. Steak. Yes. What's your favorite cut? Uh, I like, uh, boy, you know, for I'll, for New Year's around here in Pennsylvania, people eat pork and sauerkraut, but we have, we, I can't stand pork and sauerkraut. So we get prime rib and my wife makes prime rib with this wonderful gravy on it. Um, and uh, so that I would eat that every night. <laughs> so good. So good. So good. All right, David, 
What is a dream that you have yet to achieve? <laughs> you know, I love to travel. And so there are parts of the world that I have yet to travel to or that I would love to go back to. Uh, Ruth and I love to explore new areas. We love the Caribbean. We love snorkeling in clear blue water. So we enjoy that very much. There are also parts of Europe that we haven't yet explored. So I would say it's probably different travel destinations. Mm, so fun. I am going to Portugal this summer, which I'm really excited about. Never been before. Know very little uh, to nothing about Portugal. So <laughs> I'm really excited. Um, okay. And uh, Rob, what is on your most played playlist on Spotify? Okay. So <laughs> I don't have Spotify. Or like <laughs> Apple Music never... or whatever, you know, Pandora. Yeah, so, well, I'll just say what I listen to most uh, right now is uh, a Thomas Rhett song, Slow Down Summer. And I just love that song. I so, love Thomas Rhett. Yeah. I mean, I just love that song. I could listen to it over and over again. Good choice. Good choice. All right. And my last question is the question I ask all my guests and that this is for both of you. And that is, uh, David and Rob, what does it mean to for you uh, to run a business or a church with purpose? I think for me, it's it's um, as you figure out the purpose and what I watch a lot of churches do is they try to do too many things. And mm. so they think their purpose involves hundreds of things. When for us, our purpose is to introduce people to Jesus. And so it's figuring out what are the things that are going to help us excel in that area versus what are good things that might actually distract us? And so for me, it's really being very, very laser focused on what that purpose is for us, introducing people to Jesus and following him, as opposed to there's so many other good causes that we could become distracted by. And I think churches are notorious at being distracted by good things, and they don't accomplish the most important thing, which is introducing people to Jesus. Mm, mm, man, that's good. That's a good word right there. What about you, Rob? And I think even just with anything, uh, whether it's uh, leading uh, the business or whether it's uh, going about life, I think um, my identity as a Christ follower is, you know, in all things, I want God to be pleased with what I'm doing. And so there are temptations in business decisions where sometimes, you know, you think oh, if I say this, I'll get business <laughs> that, that, you know, may not be the best way to do things. And so, um, you know, when we talk, when I talk to my team members about when we're meeting with a prospect, it's look, just let's just prove that we're competent, useful, and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And let's just try to be helpful to people in that regard. And and um, and so just trying to um, please God with what we do in our business, just like uh, any other aspect of our lives. Man, I love it. This has been such a rich conversation. So needed. Rob, David, thank you for being here. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing. Thank you, Molly. Appreciate yeah. it very much. Thanks for having us. Man, was that not such a rich conversation? I, like I said, I've got to have them back on because I had so many other things I wanted to ask them about. So good. Please share on social media this episode or share it with a friend that you think also needs to hear it. And be sure to tune in next week because my guest is Tara Matson. And I'm telling you, it God plans these things in such a funny way because I it just so happened that these episodes kind of came back to back. And my conversation with Tara is so, so good. One of the things we talk about at the beginning is the idea of this integrity gap and where do we, how do we shrink the integrity gap of how we're actually live our, living our lives and what we actually say, what we preach. And then the second half of our conversation, we talk all about, you know, shrinking our integrity gap in our parenting and how we parent, um, especially our young daughters to, uh, you know, to where they should find their identity. Oh my gosh, it was so, so, so good and such a perfect kind of companion to this episode. So be sure to tune in next week. 
week. But like I said, I would love to know what you loved about this episode. Let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. I would encourage you to check out the archives for so many past shows featuring incredible people who are changing the world. And if you're one of my regulars, thank you for your support. It means the world to me. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen and click that subscribe button. Clicking that button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review helps me to know what you're liking and how this show is impacting you. This show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Go do something good with purpose on purpose.